Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Darking Jung land by me, Liam Miller. He, him, here's a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. We're back, as promised, with our second part of our New Year's Theolutions episode with a wonderful new panel, a panel that was going to get together last week but uh, didn't because we were going to be recording, you know, mid-fascist coup uh, in the US, and so we thought... We might all be a bit distracted by our Twitter feeds. Uh, so we're back now. Um, but now we have this funny thing of we're doing New Year's resolutions after most New Year's resolutions have already been broken. Uh, you know, we're in, we're in uh, week two of the new year, which means I'd say conservatively 82% uh, of resolutions folks have made are gone. Um, so I think in some ways that takes the pressure off us, you know, in the sense of this is just a, a much more looser idea of, of things that we're hoping to see and do uh, and focus on both in our own work and as we did last week, also expanding it out to talk about those things that we are hoping uh, and resolving, hoping the church or the academy will resolve to do in this coming year. So that's enough of me. I'm going to pass over to our guests to begin to introduce themselves, uh, you know, so we get to know who who we're learning from, who we're talking with today. So, um, well, we did a kind of a pre-introduction before, so maybe we'll stick with the order we went off the air. So, uh, Keegan, do you want to jump in and let us know a bit about yourself? Sure, yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name's Keegan Osinski. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and I am the librarian for theology and ethics at Vanderbilt University. So I work mostly with graduate students studying theology, religion, um, getting their MDiv, preparing to be ministers. So... Um, I enjoy being able to do a little bit of my own research and writing in theology and then also being a part of other people's projects and getting to help them with what they're working on. Wonderful. Thank you. And I'm, I'm looking forward to talking more about your own research and the uh, very particular project that you've got coming out soon. So we'll, we'll, that's a tease for everyone that we'll get to that soon. <laughs> uh, Flora. All right. Um, my name is Flora. Uh, I take she, her pronouns. Um, I am currently in South Bend, Indiana, getting my PhD in theology and peace studies. Um, I'm in my first year, so I'm still exploring what I'm doing. Um, but a lot of what I want to study is, um, yeah, thinking about racialized trauma and intergenerational trauma as well as queer theology um, from a particularly sacramental theology lens. Um, yeah, so I'm excited to see where that would lead. Um, I am originally from Beijing, China, um, and I did my master's at Harvard Divinity School um, in theological studies. Great. Thank you. Nicole. Uh, hey, I'm Nicole Mugford. I am a member of the Uniting Church um, in Australia. I live in Melbourne, um, where I was working as a youth pastor, um, but I've just recently finished up that role. Um, but I lead a community for LGBT young adults or people in their 20s and 30s. Um, I'm not really sure what's young adults these days, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, um, so that's been really cool. We lead that online um, across, across Australia. Um, I am a youth worker by trade um, and have studied a bit of theology and ministry um, around the place as well. Thank you for that. And, yeah, I think um, young adult in the, in the church world is a, is a goalpost that keeps moving uh, as, as, as we're just trying to keep, uh, keep more and more folks in, uh, it seems sometimes, but, uh, no, that's, that's a wonderful, looks excited to talk more about that community as we go forward. So as we kind of started last, uh, in the, in the part one of this is, you know, just a bit about 
you know, we're starting a new year. We actually have started now. Uh, and I'm just interested in your own uh, personal projects, personal aspirations, hopes, things you want to be writing, reading, uh, forming, uh, exploring uh, coming into this year. That could be either in a kind of an academic lens or in terms of fostering a community, as, as Nicole has said. So I guess what are your own personal uh, re- resolutions or theolutions as we've been framing it uh, in this and, and um, anyone can jump in here to start with. I think the benefit of it being a couple of weeks into January is that if we didn't quite at the start of the year plan them, now we have the opportunity (laughs) to plan them. And we look successful because we're already two and a half weeks in. So, you know, that's the benefit, I think. Um, But for me, um, the the community that I've been fostering online, um, we're looking this year to... Um, develop it as a faith community recognised officially uh, with the Uniting Church, which is a process that I'm not sure what that process is, but um, we've been having some conversations starting to look at what does it mean to be, um, I guess, accredited and formalised in that. And um, so with that, um, there's been a lot of conversation with myself and some of our leadership team around um, what does it look like, like what is what is a community and what what constitutes a faith community Mm. um so it's been a really interesting conversation to go you know do we need the bells and smells to be a church community or is it you know a faith community or can we just because we pray is that enough and just because we gather together as the people as people of faith is that enough and so um it's been a really interesting I guess uh discovery and conversation as we're starting that so that's been a really interesting thing um that I'm hoping we'll just be discovered this year um and then I think personally just uh discovering and discerning more of my ministry um and what that looks like and uh, where that's formed and so I think uh for me I'm 28 and I'm just kind of at this pace of life where I'm like I just I just want to be I want to be me and I want to be me proudly and I want to I want to live that out and I don't really give a stuff if people don't like it like it is what it is take it or leave it um but it's taken a long time for me to get to that place and so I kind of I feel like I'm there and now I just want to live that out and so Mm. with all the things that come with that in terms of trauma baggage doubts questions everything like I just yeah I just want to live that out I don't know that's that's me I think that's beautiful Uh, the the great work begins that's wonderful yeah thanks Nicole (laughs) Uh, anyone else want to, want to share theirs? I'll go ahead and share. Uh, I spent most of 2020 last year writing a book. So this year I'm kind of taking a break. Like mm. I know I'm, there's going to be work to do as far as edits. I don't have an exact date for when it comes out yet. Uh, it should be early summer. Um, but I writing a book is really hard. (laughs) So I'm glad to kind of be done with the writing portion of it. Uh, I had to to actually today I was working on writing a short piece for um, a library journal. And I was like, Oh, wow, I haven't written something in like a couple of months now. (laughs) Because I've just been like, I submitted my manuscript. And I was like, Okay, that's enough for a while. Um, But so this year, I'm definitely going to try to, you know, take a little break from that, but also to get back into reading and writing 
in other areas because mm-hmm. I've just been so the book is uh, queer readings of John Wesley sermons. Um, so I just was reading John Wesley sermons and Wesleyan <laughs> theology and you know Methodist stuff, Nazarene stuff, and I'm kind of worn out <laughs> on that <laughs> for now. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, my goals for this year. To, to just kind of chill a little bit, kind of explore, you know, what might be next, what projects I might start working on next. Um, and then, yeah, just talk to people about my book once it comes out. I'm really excited about it. I think um, it's something that the Wesleyan churches will really benefit from and, um, you know, churches more broadly by having like a queer perspective on, you know, one of these kind of great preachers um that's really foundational to a lot of people's faith and practice so i'm excited to see what kind of conversations come out of the book once it comes out awesome thank you for that that sounds so exciting uh flora how about you okay and that book sounds really cool and i would most definitely be interested in reading it once it comes out um See, I think like I mentioned this earlier, but a lot of um, what I study is sacramental theology, which is like a very specifically like a Catholic or Anglican Episcopal um, area that focus on the sacraments. Um, mm. But um, and liturgy, which like I think like all of them is very queer, and I that's kind of why I got into it. Um, mm. But yeah, so I think as I do more of that academically, um, I have been this past semester using sacramental theology as a lens to look at um, clerical sex abuse in the Catholic Church. Um, and like, because we talk about healing a lot when it comes to um, survivors of any type of violence and trauma, um, but especially sex abuse. Um, so thinking about like what healing means in the context of justice and in the context of like sacramental healing um, and in the context of like, um, yeah, like, patriarchies and systems of violence itself that needs to be healed. Um, so I kind of hope to like keep doing that, um, but also extending that into looking at um, a theology of baptism, um, which is like the first sacrament a lot of Christians receive. Um, yeah, and how to think of like a more decolonial theology of baptism since like baptism itself has a lot of um, colonial baggage um, and especially in like this American context um, toward people who are black and brown um, as well as indigenous. Um, So like, I don't really know where I'm going with that yet, um, but I know that's the topic that I want to explore. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, so there's some great stuff in all those responses that we can start to to unfold and unpack. Um, Keegan, I guess I'll start with you uh, with the book. Um, So, I think one of the reasons I think it'd be really interesting for, for Nicole and myself and for others who will be listening to this is, you know, so we're both part of Uniting Church, which uh, is a, a union of Methodist, Congregationalists and Presbyterians. So, so that Wesley tradition is strong um, and, and prominent here in, in our church. So I guess what, what led you to Wesley to begin with? And then what was it when you started to read those sermons that you're like, Hey, actually, I've got an idea, (laughs) a very queer idea, Uh, and I think there's something here. Uh, And I guess, um, so what leads you to that? And I guess then what leads you to think that the the church can, as you said, the church can benefit, especially Methodist and and Nazarene traditions. What what is it that maybe more specifically you think that churches will benefit from this particular reading and this opening up of Wesley's work? Yeah, so it's it's actually really funny. People ask me this all the time. One of my friends early on when I started the project was like, 
what, why are you so interested in Wesley? And I was like, oh, I'm not. <laughs> um, but it just seemed like, so I'm a member of the Church of the Nazarene, which is an evangelical uh, Wesleyan denomination. It's quite conservative. It's not affirming. Um, uh, but I'm queer, I'm bisexual and I, you know, I, I personally haven't had a ton of negative experiences with my own churches that I've attended in the Nazarene denomination. I've had a lot of support. I've had a lot of, you know, friends that I've made. It's been very, it's been a really good experience for me. And I know that that is not the case for most queer people, uh, who've, encountered, um, this church. Um, so just, this is kind of a digression, but to that point, I feel like because I don't have that kind of, um, trauma that I've experienced, I have a kind of responsibility to be able to stay and just bear witness to another way of being, um, to just be able to be myself, Nicole, kind of what you were saying, and just like, be like, I don't really care if you don't like it. I, this is just who I am. I'm here, you know, I'm here. I, I'm, I'm here. I'm queer. I'm Nazarene. (laughs) Um, so that's kind of how I came to Wesley. So just as a, you know, by the, by the merit of being part of the Nazarene church and having, uh, John Wesley be such you know, an important foundation. Um, so, you know, I studied uh, philosophy and theology at a Nazarene college in undergrad. So, you know, I was exposed to him there. And then I was also exposed to um, a lot of feminist Nazarene and Wesleyan scholars. Um, most notable, probably Mildred Bangs Winecoop, who uh, her big you know, major uh, work is called A Theology of Love. It came out in 1972, I think. And her whole thing was that uh, holiness, the basis of holiness, which is, you know, the Wesleyan thing, is love, right? So the, the, the bare, you know, just like the most basic way of describing holiness is perfect love. Uh, and so kind of, she kind of led the, crusade that's not let's not use the crusade language uh campaign she led the campaign uh to kind of make this more of a central central way of thinking about holiness Mm. and so as i you know i've been working with the these these texts for a while um I was like, you know what, like if we're, if we're to a point where we're considering, you know, in queer theology, um, an ethic, uh, a sexual ethic that is based in love, uh, we might then also think about, you know, if holiness is based in love, um, Mm. like there's something here, we can do something with this. Mm. Um, so sorry, this is like a long answer. I will (laughs) wrap it up. Um, so basically what I'm doing is I'm taking, uh, Wesley's sermons as the, uh, kind of raw material and reading it with a queer lens and just kind of playing around with it and seeing what we can, what we can do with it. Mm. Um, because what I learned from a lot of these feminist scholars, which, you know, the church of the Nazarene has always ordained women, um, you know, feminism, you know, is 
at least in word, if not in deed, like, you know, an accepted, you know, thing. Um, And people use Wesley as a kind of proto-feminist figure, even though, of course, he was a man of his time. Um, But feminists take his work and say, well, look, we can, we can, we can make it feminist, right? (laughs) And therefore, you know, we can be a Wesleyan church that, uh, you know, has feminist ideals. Mm. Feminist theory and queer theory are real close, you know. Um, There's a lot of overlap there. And so I basically just did the same thing. I'm like, here's Wesley's sermons. Let's, like, get some feminist theory. Let's get some queer theory in here. Let's roll it all around. And, like, Mm -hmm. look, we can talk about a queer Wesleyanism, Mm -hmm. um, a way to talk about holiness as queer and queerness as holy. Mm -hmm. Um, It's totally possible. And it's totally, we are able to continue a tradition that is faithful to the Wesleyan, you know, uh, way of thinking (laughs) about faith. Um, that's also completely like legitimate legitimizes, not, I don't want to say legitimizes queerness, but views queerness as a legitimate, holy way of being. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's basically like the argument that kind of goes through the book as I, so I, did, I have an introduction that kind of lays out like, here's what I'm doing here. Here's why. Um, here's why I think it's possible. Here's where it comes from. And then I have 10 sermons and each of them kind of goes a different way, has a different um, little like mini argument within itself. Um, and then kind of the ultimate push or conclusion is like, you can have a queer Wesleyan theology um, that is liberatory for queer folks and really for everyone. Um, so mm-hmm. that's, that's the project. That's what I'm up to. Uh, I'm still, I'm excited about it. Um, like I said, I'm ready for other people to read it and have conversations and see what, what comes out of it. Cause I think it's, it's unique in an original work, which this is the thing that always gets me because it's like, I'm not a Wesley scholar. I'm not, you know, I don't have a PhD. Uh, it's, it's, I'm like, is this not that hard? Like, why is nobody doing this? Um, although I do realize a lot of the reason why no one's doing this is because there are no uh, affirming Wesleyan denominations. So anyone who is qualified or capable of doing this, you know, a lot of them are ordained. A lot of them are working at me- like Methodist or Wesleyan schools who maybe don't like, um, you know, that kind of theology. So there's like a certain risk for them. Um, and I just, I don't bear, I have the privilege of not bearing that risk mm. of, um, you know, I'm not ordained. Um, I don't work at, you know, a Methodist or Nazarene school or anything like that. So I kind of, um, get to just say whatever I want. <laughs> yeah. It can, it can be very hard to find someone, you know, amidst all the stacks of a library, you know, you can, you can really hide for days in there. I imagine. <laughs> yeah. Look. When the, when the mob comes for me, I'll just, you know, <laughs> hide out in the stacks. <laughs> no, I, I feel like that theology though is really well stacked. Um, like it's really well situated in the, oh, like the Wesleyan quadrilateral, like uniting church, 
like theological colleges, they just like love the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Like I swear every class I took, people were like, let's talk about the Wesleyan quadrilateral, (laughs) but we're going to add this fifth section to it because we think this is, anyway. So it's like all the time, but like I just feel like the queer theology of that is really well situated within that quadrilateral, like within that experience and within that, um, what that looks like. And so it's really interesting. I'm like super interested. Mm. Yeah, I definitely make use of the quadrilateral quite a bit um, and different other other people's uh, ways of using it. Um, yeah, that definitely shows mm. up a lot because it, 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 like you said, it's like seems so obvious. Once, once I yeah. started like doing this work, I was like, yeah, why, mm. why is this not already a thing? Like surely mm. someone else has done this already. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I think what, what, what where I think also it's, it can be so helpful is like the often when we've been having debates in the Uniting Church around marriage uh, and, and questions like that, um, there's often the, you know the invocation of well, if Wesley were alive, um, and and both sides will claim he would have been on this side or that side or whatever, um, which you know whereas this kind of thing of like okay that question we can never answer and it's not actually that important, but what can be made of the work. Um, and what could be there latent in our traditions in the texts that we feel have formed us uh, and in ongoing conversation with, with the lived experience um, is maybe a more, a, a more fruitful way to turn. I think that's, that's what's something exciting. Yeah, Which- exactly. I, I talk about the idea of tradition as like a stream, right? Like it's mm. moving forward. It's tradition isn't looking back at something static and like monolithic and being like, that's our tradition. Like, we're in our Mm. tradition right now Mm. and there have been you know times where it has changed over time um and i think we're at a point where we're we're having that change right now Mm. um that doesn't mean we're jumping out of the river uh we're just we're just still going Mm. yes 100 percent Flora, I was thinking about, you know, with your work on on, on, on sacraments and, and, and sacramental theology, which, you know, itself, I guess, you know, and you're trying to bring it into a whole other kind of conversation as well around trauma and healing and post-colonialism and, and, and et cetera. Like this, again, is a kind of like reaching into the depths of this tradition and its richness and its potency, but but trying to draw it into a new conversation. So I, I guess I'm just handing over to you if you, any thoughts you have, both either directly to what Keegan's been talking about or, or just into your own work now and how you think about this again, this, this wrestling with and looking for that liberative strain in, in, in past traditions. Yeah. Um, I really echo with, with what Avi said actually about tradition. Um, Cause I think a lot of what um, Catholicism tend to debate is tradition itself. Um, we really pride ourselves on the existence of a long tradition. Um, and sometimes in, um, in different debates on pretty much every controversial topic within the church, um, there's been sides that say church teaching never changes. Um, there's also been sides that say tradition is always moving. Um, so I think that's always, um, and both sides reach into tradition um, as we look for um, evidence um, or mm. yeah, arguments um, to support our claims, which I'm sure is the case in almost every denomination as well. Um, but I think one thing that like really matters to me is that like at the heart of every, um, Christian tradition, if I may say, um, is um, practice. Um, it's not just teaching or writing or really dense theology that I can't even read because I don't speak German, um, but it's just what the people did. Um, and I think for me, that's what um, Catholics call liturgy is, um, or some of us um, in Protestant denominations might call it worship um, or whatever we call it. It's just like 
the things that we do on the ground um, by ordinary people, um, most often women, actually, um, and the ways that we live out our faith, the ways that we pray, um, the ways that we engage with this faith in like a very like non-elitist and a very like not necessarily intellectual way. Um, and I think for me, that is the core of like what I think my tradition is, um, which is why I go back to um, liturgy and sacraments so often is like, mm. what do people do and how do these actions um, convey meaning and how um, how do these actions um, liberate people rather than oppress or in mm. other words, how could they be more liberative um, rather than oppressive or colonial um, or like heteronormative. Um, mm. Yeah, so I think like as we talk more about tradition, both in like my field um, and in general, yeah, I think for me, like it's really helpful to keep in mind that like ultimately it's about like the people um, on the ground rather than just um, scholars or theologians or church leaders, so. Mm. Yeah, yeah that's that's something that I read when I was doing my research for my book is um, Dawn Moon has a book called God, Sex and Politics, I think. Um, and that's basically like what her argument is that, you know, people have, you know, churches have these like teachings. But when you get down to it, like it's it doesn't really matter what they are. <laughs> what matters is like what the people in the communities are doing um, in real life. Um, and I think that to that point is exactly why I'm able to remain in the church of the Nazarene, even though a lot of like the higher level doctrines or rules are things that don't really work for me. Mm. Um, my local congregation is where I find a lot of hope and life and grace, um, and community. And so like, you know, at the end of the day, that's what matters to me more because mm -hmm. those are like the actual human beings that I talk to on a regular basis um, rather than this like, like nebulous, like tradition that's not real. Mm. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I've been reading in a similar vein. I've been reading some uh, Marcella Arthur's read recently, and you know, a very again, again, yeah, again, the very like we're all dancing. <laughs> yeah, no, I got that got a, I got a big pop. I love it. Um, but again, that very much of the like, what is the actual lived experience of people? Like, what is actually going on there, and, and how often that's ignored or papered over? I think is really vital. Nicole, I'm, I'm curious. You know, you're thinking you know because in some ways you've started very organically this you know community this faith community right this like you know as you say you put it out there maybe five of my friends will come on and then it's just it's grown and expanded and people are finding it a home and so that's you know as it started with just people's experience their hopes they're very you know a, a very informal kind of gathering but now is wrestling with the okay so to take this further there now needs to be a sense of it, it, it coming into a broader tradition and a broader history and, and movement. Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts on, on, on almost this, that you, you kind of living in this tension right now and I guess maybe either the fears of what it might lose, paid, um, weighed up against what it can gain um, and how you're thinking of navigating it or whether you're just thinking like, look, it's a, sometimes utilitarian steps must be made <laughs> and, 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 and then we'll just go on doing what we're doing. Um, yeah, so like a lot of the reason for formalizing it is is money. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. we're not really sure. Um, at, like at the moment, it operates out of my out of my study. It's an online community, so it's 
the cost to me is a Zoom membership <laughs> every year. It's not overly big. Um, but we're kind of just looking at well, what does that look like in the future for this community, realising that there are 30 or 40 people that are actually connecting in with our private Facebook group and our conversations. Mm-hmm. And um, but so part of it is, well, what does that look like to have some accountability? And if we were to meet up, um, with the people that live in the same state as me that gather, what does that look like to do that? Do we have insurance to do that? Do we need insurance? Do we care? Um, <laughs> who's accountable for this? Am I going to get sued if the church realizes that I'm talking about sex and 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 gayness and um, you know, like what does that look like? Um, you know, and so just having some of those protections makes formalizing that process kind of a necessity um, more so than anything else um, and then hopefully as well with the form if with that in connecting to money then maybe I could get paid for some of the stuff that I'm doing nice. in, in the in the long yeah. in the long run yeah. um, Love it. but um, the dream <laughs> the dream yeah um, <laughs> So, actually getting paid for your labor <laughs> it's a novel thought but yeah. you know got bills so um like I don't know that's I think that's part of it but I think um yeah there there is a risk of losing the authentic kind of home nature of that mm. um of that gathering by formalizing as something and also we've been really intentional as we've set this up like a lot of people I've put it out on Facebook and I have a reasonably big social network connection um, and a whole bunch of ministers have been like, oh, can we come along? It sounds really interesting, your discussion topic. And and I've I've just said no a lot of times. Um, and I've said no because gays aren't guinea pigs. Um, and that's kind of become my catchphrase because um, and and the, the ministers and the leaders that have asked, they're really well-meaning Um you know, they want to learn what does it mean to partially care or to connect and, and everything. But, like, that's not what that space is for. Mm-hmm. That space is for for queer people to find homes, to find community without judgment. And so they don't need a whole bunch of onlookers trying to work out how to talk to them in that space. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so it's been a really hard tension to do that because then there is that kind of exclusive you know, you've got to be gay to be in this community. You've got to, you know, have questions of your sexuality or gender identity. And so, like, it is an, it's an interesting space to try and work out, like, I don't, I don't want to be excluding. So what does it look like to have a community that's open but also that's really safe? Mm. Um, so there's all these kind of tensions to balance up in, in that regard as well as, you know, what is, if I was to join a denomination or a, you know, what would our denomination require of us and what does the Australian law require of church communities or whatever, you know. And so, yeah, I I have no idea, honestly. Mm, mm. Um, I, yeah, I honestly, like I sat down, I was questioning my sexuality a number of years ago and I'd um, just kind of come out like literally three days before um, I went to the National Young Adults Leaders Convention, which is a Uniting Church conference. Um, we had it two years ago. And um, I was sitting down with some of my friends who were queer and we were just chatting about stuff. And it was kind of probably the most freeing experience of my life, just kind of being able to share 
my faith, my theology, my identity in that moment and just not worry. Um, it was the first time I'd been able to do that. But from there, I kind of was like, I wonder what that looks like to be able to have those conversations and to have those spaces. And, you know, when I was not out, I was I was deeply seeking those spaces, but I didn't have them. Um, and so I think that's where it grew. But I honestly, as I said, yeah, I only thought, five of my friends would rock up the five that, you know, we talked about late into the night at this conference. And, you know, the first event that I hosted online was in the prime of like Australia's COVID lockdown. So that probably helped because people were bored. Um, <laughs> but um, like, you know, 30 people rocked up and then I was like, oh crap, I'm a leader. How do I do this? Oh, <laughs> like I did not expect this to be a thing. And um, yeah, so every month we host a different conversation. But I think with that, I don't know how it came back, but I was thinking just before. Um, one of the things that I think the church needs to give up but also take on simultaneously, I don't know if that's possible, is um, is sex. Not like, but just conversations of it. Like I'm so sick of the, like, the judgment around sex and everything, but also there's no good conversations about sex. Um so, like, the conversations I'm having in our community at the moment, like, we every month have a different discussion topic around stuff. But, um, like, we're just, as people in our 20s and 30s, could just be the part of the life, I, like, my stage of life, it probably is. But we just, like, we, we need a good sexual ethic and I don't think that's being encouraged and, like, or, or at least the sexual ethic that's being taught is still the sexual ethics from the 70s, but it doesn't actually relate to what society is looking like. And so, you know, purity culture is rubbish and um, abstinence is not necessarily a active part of life. And so how do we actually teach into that and live into that? And so, like, the church needs to start having those conversations and considering those conversations and what do relationships look like if they're not just, you know, if they're ethical, ethical non-monogamous, you know, what does it look like for, you know, our asexual community or platonic relationships, you know, like there's just, it's so much bigger than just someone and someone having a little cuddle. Like, <laughs> I don't know what rating we have here. I'm just saying. I know, go for it, go for it. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I just like, yeah, I don't know. We just need to have a, we need to have a better conversation because the conversation is happening or it's not happening in the privacy of people's homes and in the privacy of friendships and relationships and everything. And it would be really nice to be able to have that theological conversation around that. And yeah, it's people, awkward at time, but it's good. I found, you know, cause again, like my work right now is a lot about sex as well. <laughs> and people really do like there isn't a good place to have these conversations I um similar uh Nicole to your you know you didn't think very many people were going to show up and then it was like this whole thing I uh I guess two summers ago ooh, maybe three now time is fake I don't know <laughs> um but I uh led or I was teaching a queer bible reading workshop um and I was just like, you know, I told my friends, like, I made a Facebook event, like, I'm like, I'm, I'm gonna do this thing, where it's like, here's how you read the Bible queerly. Um, 
And yeah, I think like 30 or 40 people showed up and a lot of them were young people, um, college students at the Nazarene college, (laughs) um, who were like, this is so great. It's so interesting. No one's talking about this here. You know, um, I visited another school and gave a talk on my queer Wesley stuff. And afterwards I was just like mobbed by these college students who were just like, what? This is so cool. Like, we want to talk more about this. And I'm just like, you know, the church is so like, supposedly wants young people to get involved. And like, young people have, you know, thoughts and ideas and want to have these conversations. Like, Mm. I see there's a real easy solution here. Um, But yeah, people are, are really hesitant and scared. Mm. Um, of what that would mean to like actually have these honest, authentic conversations. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think like, oh, sorry. Um, Yeah, just really quick. I think along those lines, like something that I've been thinking about um, is, yeah, like not only talking about sex, but also like rethinking what sexual ethics um, could look like um, in our day and age. Um, And in the same way that like a lot of our social ethics um, from more of the progressive Christian traditions have like, I guess, centered the voice of, the, of those on the margins, so those who are poor, um, those who are economically disadvantaged, for example. Like, what does it mean to rethink sexual ethics that, like, center the experiences of those who are, like, on the sexual margins of different churches, so, like, those who are queer, or, like, um, yeah, and or those who have been um, sexually violated um, and abused, and, or just different categories of people um, whose experiences we don't tend to focus in like the quote-unquote normative um sex ed um between like a cis man and a cis woman um yeah and like what does it mean to like begin from those experiences that are more on the margins um and center their actual experiences not just like theories on sex um Mm. yeah but then like have that start the conversation rather than be like oh by the way like gay people exist you know so especially especially in the church where everything is so centered on like the nuclear family um you know even like straight cisgendered single people are often left out um Mm -hmm. because it's all about get married have kids like that's the only option and increasingly like as you know some denominations are becoming more open to like gay folks they're like yeah gay folks are great if you also get married and have children Mm -hmm. um you know there's not actually room to have these conversations or to explore um what queerness actually is Mm -hmm. um it's still very dominated by the heteronormative situation mm. Mm. and you're still considered a young adult until you're married with children like that's <laughs> that's the definition of young adult like um I was young adult pastor in my church and someone was like oh you need to go and um you need to make sure you include you know so and so over there and I'm like he's 42 years old <laughs> like <laughs> I'm, uh, really they're like oh yeah but he's single I'm like <laughs> so like I don't I, I was like uh, like I just I don't I don't understand what to do right now. Like yeah, wow. he's old enough to be my parent. Mm. Like, <laughs> so yeah, I'm finding that too. Like when I'm I just when I was talking about meeting with these like college students, mm. I'm starting to realize I, I turn 32 next week or the week after, and I'm like, oh, I'm getting I'm aging out. Like <laughs> I need to start like actually like being a role model or like a, like talking There's to. Nothing- 
adults. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a bit more humbling than having like a 15-year-old be like, you're like literally double my age. <laughs> and I was like, thanks, dude, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think one place that I'm hearing this like theology that's helpful is as, as stupid as it is, like progressive Christian TikTok, like it is – like, I love it. Like, um, and, like, it's it's just one of those things where it's, like, you know, you're scrolling your For You page and it's, like, rubbish upon rubbish and dances and people having rants. And then you just, like, hear this gem from, like, this minister somewhere and they're just, like, 60 seconds of, like, you are loved, you're welcome, you're, you're okay, go do what you want. Like, it's just great. Like... Mm-hmm. I think it's, mm. it, I don't know, I'm loving it. Mm. I think what's so important is like if, if like we abdicate that sex talk and sometimes it's abdicated out of that like, oh, look, we, we don't want to be prescriptive on people or, you know, we don't want to make be um, harsh on people's buzz um, or sometimes it's out of a kind of a, oh, it's a bit taboo. Um, we're, we're leaving it open to those who will talk about it, which inevitably are people who are going to be pushing a very restrictive um repressive kind of situation, you know, who have no qualms talking about what is okay in terms of the situation. And so if people go looking for Christian talk sex, um, that's what they'll find in spades. Uh, and, and and so if we abdicate that, then, then, you know, we just are not providing people what they need because we do want to talk about, as you say, flourishing and exploring and experimenting and, and, and breaking apart binaries. But we also want to be able to have a conversation where we say that some things are harmful um, that, that a sexual ethic includes um, a level of robustness to be able to talk about that which damages, that which abuses, that which denigrates, um, but not in a way that, ex- that buys into an old kind of um, patriarchal heteronormative model, but like, but one that is is fruitful. But the thing is, we don't, we don't, we're not able to develop that because we're not able to talk about it at all, um, and so it leaves it to, to those again who, who are more than happy to um, to discuss it. Um, so. Shifting gears a little bit, we've, um, you know, we're thinking, about, we've already started talking about some of the, one of the big things that, that we want the church to kind of pick up. I've been thinking also about like, you know, obviously church has existed online predominantly um, this last year and it's been very, very different in that sense. And, and in some ways, Nicole, it allowed, you said, allowed you to start a community, right? Because what are we going to do but get on Facebook um, on a Wednesday night, you know? Um, but, you know, eventually, hopefully, um, things will we might open up again. I mean, they have a bit more here. Um, we're back to meeting in person where, where I am. But um, I guess in some sense I'm thinking what have we hoped maybe that, that has been learnt or experienced in this time that will be carried forward into, into the, the future? Um, and, Flora, I was thinking particularly when I was, you know, thinking about um, inviting you, you know, your, your experience of liturgy and sacraments and, and, and you know, because that's been something that has you know, radically been changed and been a, a you know, a, a um, flashpoint in a lot of the conversations is, is what, how do we do liturgy online and particularly how do we think about sacraments? Um, so I guess, you know, as we think about what, what your experiences online, either with the church or without this year and, and, and what are some of the, maybe the lessons learned or the experiences that we've been kind of forced to wrestle with that we're hoping uh, carry on um, and inform what comes next. Um, I can start um, just to kick it off. Um, yeah. So, um, 
Yeah, back in March, like when the lockdown first began, um, like a group of friends and I, I was still in Boston then, um, like decided that we would start um, a little Zoom church. Um, and that has been running since then and every Sunday. Um, and then during the holy seasons, um, like Easter and Christmas, sometimes also on those days as well. Um, it was pretty organic. Like I did not expect to start anything like that. Um, it's still, it still pretty much follows like the Catholic um, liturgy of the word model. So everything leading up to like, um, like the celebration of communion itself. Um, and then, yeah, it's a group of friends who are all queer. Um, but like everyone else is also welcome. Like it's not like a queer exclusive church group, um, but, and like we've been taking turns each week to preach and preside and then opening up the sermon or homily space for everyone else on the Zoom call to also share if they wish. Um, yeah, and like we've been doing music um, and yeah, like little blessing prayers. Um, we figure out ways to like say blessings over holy water. Um, yeah, to like at least bless our own water um, to mm. whatever extent that means um, to use during like the Easter liturgies. Um, so I think that's something that just like, yeah, really magically happened for me throughout the pandemic. Um, and yeah, like I'm, I feel like ever since I left college, I never really felt at home in any particular like Catholic parish. Um, a lot of them are really cool. I just like, some of them are just really big and I um, haven't like really connected with people there, but and other churches have great music, but the homilies might be like homophobic. And I would be kind of like sitting at the edge of my seat and be like, please don't say that, please don't say that. Um, and I think like this has been, so like my little Zoom church has been such like a little space of grace for me, um, where I've seen like my friends who, some of them are MDivs um, or theologists and others are not, um, taking turns to preach in really beautiful ways. So I feel like looking back, like, I was just like, yeah, this should have been like, almost should have been there the entire time. We're like, little communities of predominantly queer people and otherwise progressive people um, get together to like share the wisdoms of their own faith um, and to make liturgies really creative and really beautiful, um, which is like what like us queer people are really good at doing um, in like traditional churches anyway. Um, so yeah, like I really hope that um, whether it's for me or for other people, um, who have found um, really creative communities um, that those communities would continue because it's almost like for the first time I'm in this like authentically Catholic space that I also know that like um, I can be fully myself um, and I don't have to like cringe or like cross my fingers um, every time like the word family is brought up during a church homily um, or like something icky like on like divorce and marriage is brought up. Um, so I'm really grateful for that. Mm. Oh, thank you. I love that. That's great. Um, my my church, my local church also is pretty small. So when we uh, had to go online, um, it's actually pretty funny. I was the only one that had or knew how to use Zoom because I worked at the university. And so I was like, oh, well, here's the link to my Zoom room. Like, we'll just meet there. And like 10 months later, I'm still the one hosting church every week. <laughs> um <laughs> But especially at the beginning of the like initial lockdown, um, my church folks were the people that I really saw the most because I didn't really see my friends. I wasn't going to work every day, um, but I, you know, we met on every Sunday and then I, for a while, was going to our Wednesday night Zoom meeting as well. And it was just like a small place to like 
process what the hell was going on. Um, and so I think to the point uh, that we talked about earlier about the, the reality of, um, you know, our liturgies and the work that we do in the church for, for my church, it really, you know, we put together a pretty, I mean, it's, it mirrors our normal uh, liturgy pretty closely, but, you know, we just get on zoom, we do our normal thing. We, we pray together. There's a sermon. We hear from our pastor. We talk, you know, share our lives. Um, and we just kind of do the bare minimum of what we need to do to get worship done. <laughs> um, you know, we're not trying to do anything fancy. We're not like pre-recording or editing or which I know some churches are doing that and that's been great for them too. But for our, you know, there's like 20, 40 of us or something. Um, it, it was just like, let's just, meet together like that's all we really want to do so let's just like make it mm -hmm. easy and do that um so I think the the lesson there has been you know just like dealing with the reality of people's lives and and meeting people where they are and kind of I think I, for me this is one of the like overarching lessons of the entire pandemic is like you know sometimes the bare minimum is okay <laughs> Yeah, um, I tend to be a little bit of an overachiever and I've been like, okay, girl, you need to stop. Like this is not tenable. This is not sustainable. And I think that's something that for sure I experienced within my, my church community as well. Like let's just mm -hmm. do the bare minimum. And that actually is really fruitful and, and healing and uh, a really beautiful space for us in this time. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think, I hated everything about online church. I say as I lead an online church space. Um, I think, like, in terms of my normal um, congregation, we, we did a pre-recorded service. Um, so I think we were online from about Lent 2 to um, Advent 2. So it was about 38 weeks um, online. So we did 38 pre-recorded services. Um, as a pastor, I was part of those 38 services. Um, but I just hated it because it was pre-recorded. There was no there was no community. There was no gathering space in that. Um, and as someone who lives alone, therefore I was kind of alone in my in my gathering of worship. So it wasn't. It didn't really feel to me like a communal worship. Um, opportunity and so I, I kind of really hated it um, I the Uniting Church um, they gave permission for online communion um, services to be conducted and I hated that um, I it was a part of the decision that was made for that and I support the decision that's fine but just for me as someone who lived alone like I just I wasn't breaking bread with community I wasn't in communion to have communion and so I just I just I couldn't I just didn't like it um and I think um as both um as both of you have said like people were really people were really okay with just gathering together um and being creative and trying new things and I think for me the disappointment was when we went back face to face we went back to the same stuffy old building mm -hmm. and did the same things that we'd done even if they hadn't worked you know, pr prior to that, and even if they hadn't worked online, we were kind of straight back to it. And I just, like, I wrote a blog, and it came out of my bitterness, but um, I wrote a blog about, like, and I, I titled it The Church is Redundant. And um, 
the premise of my blog was it was it was out of my frustration of being made redundant at the church um but I was just like we'd spent eight and a half months saying the church isn't a building and then we went back to the building and we were like we're back church (laughs) is back and I'm like but I thought the church wasn't a building (laughs) and it's just like I don't know, like we have these buildings. And so for me, like I spent a lot of lockdown going, well, I actually really like sleeping in on a Sunday morning. Mm. I really like being able to go to my local coffee shop and go to the beach and, you know, connect in community in those places. So what does it mean that we lock ourselves away in a building for an hour and a half on a Sunday and actually aren't engaging with the wider church? You know, and these buildings... They were shut up for nine months, um, Where, particularly where I lived. We had a really harsh um, lockdown conditions and, you know, we weren't allowed further than five kilometres from our house. And so it was it was really kind of, you know, I was further away from my church. I couldn't even get there. It was too far away. And so um, what does that mean to do community in the local park or to do it, you know? And so I think there's so much... Again, it comes back to money, but like there's so much money in assets that we have that we're just not using properly. And what would that look like if we use them in in different ways to fund different communities? And so I think for me, I really ended up questioning a lot of that. And I, I came back to church face-to-face um, to be made redundant and to leave two weeks later. So I kind of, like I don't have a church community right now. Mm. Um kind of in between spaces and I I deeply love the church like don't get me wrong I deeply love the church um I would consider myself a uniting church nerd um I'm involved in many councils of the church and everything but I just I just think we need to be ready and willing to consider what does it look like to do ministry differently Mm. um to do it outside the church um church building space yeah I don't know I just there's there's so much trauma held up with um with the church as a building and with like the institution and I just I wonder what does it look like to be free of that I don't have any answers Mm. though Mm. no they're great questions though and like you know, no one should doubt that, you know, your love for the church, it's only out of love that people ask these kind of questions uh, and make these kind of demands. Um, and I think it's, it's really valid. One thing I was thinking about with, with kind of the, the three responses was the way that it seemed, um, maybe a, a little less so with, with what you are saying with the pre-recorded, Nicole, but, but that um, space was being made in the way that the church was being done, people were gathering, you know, space for people to reflect, to talk, to process um, and to some extent, as you said, Nicole, when you can kind of just get together in a park or at the beach with a few people. And and I was thinking about then, like, you know, this year has not only been COVID, right? This year has been, um, you know, increased attention uh, to, to racialized violence, uh, to, you know, in the US rising ethno-nationalist fascism to, in Australia, continued denial of Indigenous sovereignty and tr- the truth of our history. You know, like, it, it, you know, continued this right like every day there's a story every other hour there's there's a new thing of like a new erosion of of democratic norms that we thought could survive a lot more than they seemingly can um and sometimes you see then you go like well you know like preacher better make sure they're addressing this in in a really succinct thoughtful 
uh, passionate, well-constructed way that that still, you know, relates to whatever text that we got to do, you know, like, and, and, it, and it puts that all on this one person to try to like scramble a message together. In it. But if we're thinking about these kind of ways that we've learned of opening up, then we kind of develop maybe more ways to actually constructively, healthily process that rather than have one person try to do it for us so that we feel like it was addressed and thus we don't actually have to process it ourselves because we that person processed it. And also, just as a minister, it takes a little pressure off like being like, I have to try to speak succinctly and, and coherently and, and goodly about this whole thing. Um, and so, yeah, just, just thoughts on, on that and, and potentially the way that might help um, our churches actually try to combat some of this, you know, the, 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 the racism and patriarchy and nationalism in our midst um, or not necessarily in the midst in terms of the local manifestation but in, in the church. I think um, one interesting thing about church being online, so I think my personal um, congregation, we lost a couple of people who just like haven't really shown up but we've also like gained people who moved away and maybe mm. didn't find a church there or, you know, just people we hadn't seen in a long time. They're like, Oh, I can log on to this, <laughs> you know? So it kind of, or, you know, I, I know on um, Christmas Eve, my church didn't have anything going on. And so I just kind of put out on Twitter, like, Hey, send me the links to your church tonight. <laughs> And I just got tons of responses and I was able to visit like so many churches that, and I never would have really thought of doing that or been able to do that in person, obviously. Um, so I think like having online church or online versions of church or meetings um, is really this way of, of opening it up to people that would never be able to, or would never necessarily want to um, show up to your church building, right? You can, you can bring people in like guest preachers that, mm. you know, like my church hasn't done this, but like we, we wouldn't be able to afford to like fly somebody in, you know, or whatever, but we could probably like give them a little something to show up on zoom. You know mm. what I mean? Um, so like, I think things like that of just like opening up these topics of conversation, um, with more and different kinds of people than you would normally like interact with on a regular Sunday in person. Um, I think, I think there's a lot of really interesting possibilities mm. there. Um, and I know for me, like my own, um, education and like radicalization for lack of a better word really has been due to like meeting a ton of different people. Um, and the internet is a huge part of that too. Like just being able to meet people all over the world. I mean, hi, I'm talking to people in Australia right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I just would not be able to do that without mm. the internet and without this kind of open opportunity to like get different perspectives and to really hear from other people's life experience. Um, and I think that there's something really important there that we, we should, we should tap into. Mm. Mm. I think, like, I, don't, I, I mean, you might have, but I never heard anybody during lockdown go, mm, I just can't wait to get back to those wooden pews to sit there and, you know, watch an old white dude in a robe carrying a candle. Like, I just, like, people people didn't say that. That's not the things that they, they cared about in that. And I think, um, but what, well, I mean, one of the good things about being 
online is that you've got that comfort of home. Um, you've got that space to, you know, to tap out if there's something that's triggering or um, not safe in a community. Um, but you've also got that, you've got the ability to fast forward and mute um, when people are when people are talking stuff you don't agree with. And I think um, as much as we hope that people don't ever do that to us as preachers and leaders, it's also there is, I think there's that space then to actually be able to create um, that opportunity for conversation and to kind of pick and choose your content a little bit more. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's... That is really helpful, especially as people want to. I think um, I was talking to someone the other day, a minister of a reasonably progressive church around our place, and he said that he's found a lot of people have come to him because they used COVID as a chance to leave their church because they yep. weren't going every week. Um, they'd already kind of maybe deconstructed in that place, but it was a bit hard to leave because of all the relationships. But, like, in some sense they were able to shift without it with being less, a bit less pressure on them um, in that time. Um and you can church shop while online because, yeah, as you said, you can go to, you know, 20 or 30 different places and have a look around and see what you find in that space. Yeah. Every Sunday morning I think I must have said something truly witty and insightful on Facebook because of all the notifications I'm getting and then I just realised it's all my all these churches going live. Um, oh, it's so annoying. Nothing to do with me at all. It's just tragic. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, one thing I was thinking about, like, um, a minister near me, she's been doing... So with COVID, they haven't, they weren't doing a Sunday online space. She was doing basically daily devotions. So she would write out five, I think it was for weekdays, daily devotions with a prayer, and that would get mailed or emailed to everyone in her church. And people were really loving it, right? As this way to kind of ground the day. And and kind of what we were talking about is she's like, I won't be able to continue that when we return because I'll need that space to prepare the Sunday service. Um, and kind of one thing you were saying is like, is there a way that if that's what people really appreciate? Could you do that and then radically rethink what happens on Sunday? Is the thing that people have missed most singing and having coffee with each other, which it seems to be, because a lot of people, we, we're allowed to return, you know, without morning tea and no singing, and a lot of people are like, we'll come back once we can do those things, right, um, which is fair. Right? You know, so could you basically build a Sunday around, okay, more music, some communal prayer or, or sacrament stuff, and then... Um, and then just a longer time together hanging out and talking and, 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 and find ways to do that. And then still do this daily devotion thing where people are still getting their discipleship and their their faith, their Christian formation and things like that. Um, you know, is that a way that we could have learned something from this that if the community appreciates this? But as someone to Nicole's point, it takes the resolve to go and the grit to kind of keep it when you don't have when you have the choice again. Um, and, and as you said, it's so easy to quickly fall back into this this what was before. Um, and I think, yeah, that's where the creativity as well is, like, stifled. Like, mm. there was so much creativity, particularly at the start of kind of a lockdown. I think we kind of got a little bit over it by the end. But, um, <laughs> you know, people thought really creatively. My minister um, took photos from around our local community, aware that not everybody in our community could get out. So they, you know, might have actually been missing the beach or been missing a bit of the area. And so he took a photo a day and did a prayer and a reflection. Um, mm. And it kind of, from there, grew this, This it was a huge following on our social church social media of um, people wanting to follow the day in the life of virus um, posts. And, like, in the end it's been published as a coffee table book, you know, with a reflection devotion. Um, but, it, like, it's a it was a beautiful creative reflection. Um, 
and and church got in the way of that a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Preparing for Sunday worship got in the way of of these reflections. And so they started off, you know, right at the start of the lockdown being every day you get a new post to being like, oh, we'll do it every second day to mm-hmm. here's one a fortnight <laughs> like <laughs> by the end of it, you know. And so I think there's, there's I think, 70 or 80 photos um, from from the lockdown, but, it, you know, it started off being every day and it was just, it was hard to maintain, but it was like really, really well received by the congregation. Mm. Um, you know, people wanted to be able to share that, um, that story of faith and reflection from their local community, you know, photos from our local community with their neighbours. So people ended up buying the book, you know, in bulk for, you know, well, I want to give it to my neighbour who I've been giving food to and I want to give it to this person and, you know, like it just, it grew. But I think, yeah, we didn't, we don't have enough space Mm. for our minister to continue doing stuff like that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, appreciate that. Um, I think, yeah. I love like the local like neighbor to neighbor nature of like what you said, Nicole. Um, And I think like for me, like one thing I've been thinking about along those lines is like thinking about like the church in relations to power um, and in relation to like what does it mean to like decenter the church um, in our Christian life? Not in the sense that like we all like don't go to church anymore and like never go inside the building again. But like what does it mean for like the church itself, especially those who are like I don't know, I call it professional Christians, um, or however you want to call it, we're in ministry, um, to be willing to like decenter ourselves, um, and to decenter like our roles um as ministers, as church leaders or whatever y'all are. Um, and I think, yeah, in the same way that like this past year, like we've been having a lot of conversations on whiteness and race, um, where one of my friends um in my theology program recently said that like um something along the lines of like whiteness must be crucified. Um, and it must be willing to be crucified um, in order to ra- for racial justice conversations to move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which is different from saying like, yeah, whiteness, um, like white people should, should you know, keep doing their thing. Um, I think like whiteness itself as like this, um, as a sin and as a theological construct um, must be willing to be crucified. Um, and in a similar way, like what does it mean to talk about like, our churches and the physical buildings and our ministers and their, um, yeah, like their, the need of like for all of us to like give up our own power and our own voice um, and be like, oh, what can like these people do? Like what does um, small C church look like on a more local level and a more lay led level um, as we have seen um, in your example, Nicole and um, in all of our experiences in the pandemic. Mm. Thank you for that. We'll, we'll probably start, you know, landing the plane uh, in a moment. It's been a wonderful conversation. Like it could just keep going. Um, but we, we, I asked this one uh, at the end of last, the, the first part. So I'll ask it again. Um, what is there, is there any, uh, any particular book or conference or something coming up in 2021 that you're particularly excited for? Now, we all know the main answer is Queering Wesley. <laughs> uh, that's predominantly, I guess. So we've, we've all said that. So now we're just talking about one A. Um, uh, you know, are there, it doesn't have to necessarily be something that's coming out this year. It could be just the thing that you've been has been sitting on your desk or nightstand um, for the back end of 2020 that you're like, I'm really truly going to read this in 2021. Um, or it could be, yeah, as I said, conference. It could be um, 
whatever it might be, is, it, is there anything that you have that you're just very excited and you want other people to potentially be excited about checking out? Um, I'll start. There's, um, I'll, I'll give you three things, but they're probably more personal things. So if everyone checked them out, that would be crazy. But um, <laughs> <laughs> the the first one is a Uniting Church specific conversation. I'm really interested in um, the assembly is starting. The assembly of the Uniting Church in Australia is starting a conversation called Act the Act Two Project. Um, and so the Assembly Standing Committee, of which I'm a part of, um, the Governance Committee, we've been looking at what does the future of the church look like and what is that, um, how do we engage in that? And so I'm really interested in in that conversation. And so uh, the President of the Uniting Church and the President-elect and uh, the General Secretary um, are hosting a series of Zoom conversations with people and there's surveys and there's work that's being done in the lead-up to our next um National Assembly meeting, and I'm just really excited about um, what voices and opinions we might hear that we haven't already, um, and what that might look like for the future of our church um, as we kind of enter into the second act, which is mm-hmm. kind of where it comes from. Um, that that idea, but so I'm really excited about that. Um, I'm also really excited about um, as part of my part of the queer community that I've got online uh, we're starting some book clubs this year and so um, the first book that we're reading starting in a few weeks is uh, Shameless by Nadia Bolsweather um, and I'm just really excited like I've read the book before but I'm really excited to have a conversation um, with that and to be able to unpack that with a group of people so there's you know 14 people signed up for the book group and um, just a diverse group of people um, married, queer, children, um, you know, all of that kind of thing. And so it's just, it's, it, I think I'm really excited about that. Um, and I'm looking at the second book that we're going to do for a book group sort of thing later in the year. Um, and I haven't read the book yet, but I'm really excited to look into it. Um, it's called Rescuing Jesus um, by, I think, Deborah Lee. Um, and I'm just, it's, yeah, book about queer people of colour, women, what does that look like? Um, and so I'm really excited to read that. Um, yeah, um, I, I like books that are not too deep theologically that are, like, attainable for normal people. Um, yeah, even yeah. though I'm not necessarily a normal person and I've done <laughs> theological study. <laughs> but still, yeah. Uh, I'm glad we know what, what makes a normal person or, or, or some makes someone unnormal that we've <laughs> established like, that. Like, the, no, there's books, but they're, like, they're really dense and I just I find it really hard to read a lot of the really dense stuff. Yeah, so Absolutely fair. <laughs> mm, no, those, those are all great. Thank you. Uh, I, so as I mentioned, I'm part of the church of the Nazarene. I'm not part of the United Methodist church, but, uh, or 2019, the United Methodist church had a general assembly conference. Actually, I think they call it, um, where they made this big decision about, you know, continuing to be non-affirming, um, as far as a denomination. And it's like a long, I mean, we know like church bureaucracy is like a nightmare and everything moves so slowly. So that, that has been like a continuing conversation and process about what that's going to look like in the future. And I think there are some more um, conversations happening around that coming up. 
And um, the Methodist, uh, it's the general, I can never remember. It's like a bunch of letters that I can never remember. But there's a book coming out um, called Methodist Revolutions. That is a collection of essays um, that's basically like progressive Methodist stuff. So there's Mm. stuff about labor, there's stuff about race, there's stuff about um, ecology, and the authors are from all over the world. It's a very diverse um, group of contributors. And I got to work on it um, a little bit with um, Jorg Rieger is one of the editors. And um, so I got to work on it a little bit with him and read some of these essays. And it, it was really refreshing for me, like as I was working on my book of like, progressive Wesleyan thought um, to be reminded that I'm not alone in that endeavor, that like there are like a lot of ministers and thinkers like and lay people who are actually like committed to like a progressive Wesleyanism. Um, So I'm interested in in this book and, you know, reading it, seeing it finished and seeing what conversations that kind of brings up in this like larger conversation about the future of the Methodist church and, you know, by extension, the other Wesleyan churches. Um, so that's something that, yeah, we'll, we'll see. It could go a lot of different ways, but I'm very curious. Gravy. Thank you. Yes. Wow. Um, all of that sounds really cool. Um, I feel like as much as I'm like the PhD student um, in this Zoom room, like I'm just absolutely not on top of like what books are coming out next or even conferences. Um, please don't tell my professors that. Yeah, <laughs> I try to do the minimum work to get by most, most days. Um, but I guess like these past few years, I have been on um, this like train of reading like a lot of Asian and Asian American literature as well as um, nonfiction, especially like in 2020, as we started talking a lot more about like race and racism and like, um, yeah, for different racial groups and how they intersect with one another. Um, So one book that I'm excited to finish um, is, um, it's called Minor Feelings. and the subtitle is An Asian American Reckoning. I might be butchering that. Um, and it's by Kathy Parkon. Um, and it's like this beautiful um, nonfiction, um, semi-autobiographical book that came out in 2020 um, that like, yeah, that like addresses a lot of issues that we don't normally think about, um, especially in the United States um, with like, um, yeah, with race, um, what it means to be Asian or Asian American um, and how it fits into like, um, yeah, conversations on white supremacy and class and privilege. Um, so I'm excited to like, yeah, finish that book and see how, how I could integrate into like my work. Um, mm. I'm also, um, again, not great at like pinpointing specific things to read, um, but this past semester I made it a goal of mine to um, like cite black women or black authors as like the main theoretical source for each of my course papers. Um, yeah, cause I feel like Oftentimes when we think of theory, we think of like dead white men um, <laughs> or from Europe. Um, but like this semester, just like, no, like I can look at women as theology um, or yeah, like black women's thoughts on reproductive health um, or whatever other issues. Um, so I want to like make it a goal of mine to keep doing that um, mm. for whatever papers I'll be working on um, next semester. So. Great. Thank you. That's, that's excellent. Uh, I'll cite a, um, a non-theological one. This one which actually came out in 2020, but I'm excited to read Red Fern, Aboriginal Activism in the 1970s. 
by Johanna Piroklitna. And I'm um, excited to get into that one, you know, as I continue to wrestle with and learn from, uh, you know, the, the history of this uh, land. So that's, there's my, there's my one. It was 2020, but I didn't get to it last year, except for the introduction. So I'll, I'll pour over it. Well, Nicole, Flora, Keegan, thank you so much for joining us. How can people connect with you, uh, connect with your work or um, anything you want to plug or shout out at this moment? Uh, it's easiest to find me probably on Twitter. My handle is at Keegs with three Z's. Uh, and then my website is keeganosinski.com. Aces. Yeah, same here. Um, my Twitter handle is at Miss Flora Tang. I sometimes tweet about theology, sometimes just tweet about cats. Um, <laughs> I do not have a website yet, um, but I will hopefully get on that in the next five years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not on Twitter. Um, I'm on Facebook, though. So, um, you can just search my name and you'll find me probably. Um, I think I'm a bit rainbowy in my profile picture at the moment, but it's a new year, so it's up for a change. So I don't know. But you should be able to find me. Cool. And and does the just the faith the, your, the faith community through that as well, or is that got a separate? It's a private group, yep. so um, you have to yeah. For, for safety you. reasons, yeah, you've yeah, got to totally. reach out. So, um, but there's yeah, there's a jot form you can fill in if you're interested in connecting, and then I'll vet you and let you in. So, Great. Yeah. Thank you for that. Well, thank you all for this today, and uh, thanks everyone for listening. And uh, yeah, see you around the bends. Bye.